You're listening to On The Money with Dynamic Funds, the podcast series that delivers access, insights, and perspective from some of the industry's most respected active managers and thought leaders. From market commentaries and economic analysis to personal finance, investing, and beyond, On The Money covers it all. Because when it comes to your money, we're on it. Welcome to another edition of On The Money. I'm your guest host, Tom Dicker, Vice President and Portfolio Manager at Dynamic Funds. We're here for a special edition of On The Money to talk to you about the ongoing crisis in the banking sector. And I'm here with the perfect guest, Nick Stogdall, Portfolio Manager of the Dynamic Financial Services Fund and the Dynamic Alternative Yield Fund. Nick has been with Dynamics Equity Income Team since 2017, and prior to that was a financials analyst for eight years at Credit Suisse. Prior to that, Nick was an accountant, so he's got lots of expertise in the financial services area. We're going to dig right into what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and Credit Suisse. We'll compare the current situation to 2008, what's similar, what's different, compare the situation in Canada to the differences with the U.S., talk about what caused the problems, address some of the risks, and risks of contagion. So Nick, thank you for joining me. I keep hearing that the U.S. Federal Reserve will hike interest rates until something breaks. So how important was Silicon Valley Bank and how did it break? Let's maybe take a step back and put Silicon Valley Bank in the context of the U.S. banking market first. The U.S. banking market is very big. There's over 4,000 banks And really, you can kind of break it into two pieces. There's the big money center banks that have national operations, diversified franchises with retail banking and wealth management and investment banking. These are names like JP Morgan and Bank of America and Citibank. Then you have U.S. regional banks. Regional banks are certain banks that only operate in the Midwest of the U.S., some that only operate in the Southeast, some that only operate in the West, and less diversified than these money center banks but they are an important part of the overall U.S. economy and the banking system. So Silicon Valley Bank was the 16th largest bank in the U.S., as you've probably heard. They were not overly material to the overall banking system, but it was a large bank with over $200 billion in assets. That said, Silicon Valley Bank did not look like your typical bank. It had a very niche strategy. It was focused on clients in high-growth areas, high-growth industries, technology, venture capital, growth equity, private equity, these niche businesses. And so it was really uh, more of a monoline bank, and it did not look like these big money center banks. And just for more context, the top five banks in the U.S. hold something in the range of 50% of the overall deposits, and the remaining thousands have the remaining 50% share of the deposits. So it was this niche strategy. And there were really two elements that I think effectively broke Silicon Valley Bank. The first is just monetary policy. The Fed started to raise rates a year ago, and as rates go up, the intention is to tighten things up in the system to reduce the lubrication in the economy. You never know how that's going to work its way into the system, and ultimately, this was just an outcome of that tightening monetary policy. You never know where it's going to pop up. The second element of Silicon Valley Bank that you know really broke the back of it was just poor risk management of the business. To try and simplify this, what happened is these niche clients went through a lot of growth in 2020-21. The tech sector clients? Exactly. The tech sector that brought in a lot of money. So all these clients put their deposits into Silicon Valley Bank, and they saw all this money come into their bank, the deposits. Banks can do one of two things with deposits. They can put them in securities, or they can lend the money out to businesses as loans. 
a lot of the money that came in to Silicon Valley Bank, they took it and they put it into fixed income securities, bonds, things like that. And the problem was really that there was a bit of a, a mismatch, if you will. The deposits could be pulled at any time, but the securities really, you know, they weren't supposed to come due for five, 10 or 15 years. So there was this mismatch. And then as the Fed started to increase interest rates, the value of those securities went down. At the same time, Silicon Valley's clients started to face more challenges in the market and their businesses, and they started pulling the cash, meaning Silicon Valley Bank had to sell these securities, which would have triggered losses and, and sort of impacted the capital base of their business. And, and that's ultimately what led to the deterioration. And you know, it was really a crisis of confidence that caused its downfall. These problems I'm talking about on the mismatch and the money coming out and the losses, they didn't really fully happen, but the market saw that there was the writing on the wall, got nervous, and deposits started running for the door. And confidence is everything in the banking market. Without confidence, there really is no banking. So it sounds like it was a classic bank run. People just pulled their money all at once. What was different about this bank run compared to some previous bank runs that we've seen in the past, like, say, you know, the biggest one I remember was SWAMU or Washington Mutual back in 2008. What was different between this one and that one? I think the view in the early days, uh, as we kind of see this unfold, is, is just actually really technology, social media, the ability to draw money out digitally, push a button on an app or on a computer screen and take that money out. So the statistic I've heard is that Washington Mutual, and it, at the end of its demise and sort of the final weeks it lost something like $17 billion of deposits, which was 8% of its deposit base. Silicon Valley Bank lost over $40 billion in a day, a single day, wow. which was a quarter of its deposit base. Staggering. That's just unheard of. And if you think about it, the historic way of a bank run was you line up at your bank and you have to go do it manually and, and pull the cash out. That's not what happened this time. You know, There was fear spread on social media, on news, and people were able to just electronically withdraw their money. And and we've never seen anything like this, uh, you know, really in history. Silicon Valley Bank wasn't the only failure, though. We saw more than one failure over the last couple of weeks. So the next one to go was Signature Bank of New York. And then we saw Credit Suisse, which is obviously a Swiss-based financial institution. So what happened there? Like, how did the dominoes fall from having problems at Silicon Valley Bank into Signature Bank and Credit Suisse. So Signature Bank did share a few similar attributes with Silicon Valley Bank. They had a lot of clients with bigger size deposit accounts. Those bigger deposit accounts are uninsured. So if you think your bank's going to have a bank run and run out of money, you're a little more scared and hesitant and you pull those deposits out. And it's easier to pull because it's just one account. Exactly. They had some industry overlap and you know, notably Signature a couple of years ago had started banking crypto clients. So oh. these crypto businesses started leaving money with them as deposits. And, you know, there's been some concerns there, obviously, given what's played out over the last year or two. So that might have contributed to it as some well. Some of the volatility in cryptocurrency could have helped accelerate some of the fears around Signature Bank. Is it safe to say that? Exactly. Now, look, Signature Bank also had exposure to real estate, particularly um, in some areas of concern. Tom, you, you know, maybe you can get your thoughts on the real estate exposure, because I think that's kind of coming up as well in the discussions with Signature. So sure. any thoughts you'd like to share? Yeah, there have been some headlines around this, and we did some digging on that. And of concern in Signature's commercial real estate portfolio were loans on multifamily in New York, but it wasn't just regular multifamily. It was this stabilized multifamily. And in 2019, they changed the laws in New York State where it became very difficult to pass on even inflation 
in terms of rent increases. So the asset values on these quote unquote stabilized assets in New York have fallen really dramatically. So the view is that these assets are a bit toxic and these loans would be toxic because the assets themselves have probably depreciated. Estimates I've seen have been 20 to 60% in terms of a decrease in asset value. So people didn't really want those loans when they matured. These loans are still all current. People are still paying their interest. It's just the view is that when they come due, they won't be refinanceable because the asset values have fallen pretty dramatically. So the underlying clients are paying and the credit quality is still good. It's more of a the rate on the loans and the yield of the loans. I would say it's more about the credit quality of the cash flows is good, but the asset value uh, has deteriorated meaningfully. So the view would be lenders wouldn't want to have to refinance those loans. So another unique attribute of, of signature. Another, call it idiosyncratic difference to other financial institutions that are out there. Um, so that's Signature Bank. Credit Suisse is one that was in trouble back as far as 2008, as far as I can remember. And then it's come up a few times since then. So what tipped Credit Suisse over the edge to need to be taken over by UBS? What happened there? And obviously, Credit Suisse being your formal employer, this is a story you fall for a long time. Working there for nearly a decade, they just had some strategic problems with their business that they've been battling. And Again, this is sort of idiosyncratic, but it was really an unprofitable business that they had in the investment bank. It was always challenged from a profitability standpoint, and they just never did enough to fix it. It was sort of death by a thousand cuts where they would do a, a small repositioning, a small restructuring, but it was never enough. You know, over the last few years, there was already some money and assets leaving Credit Suisse, but you overlay that with the crisis of confidence you were having in the US with Silicon Valley and Signature, along with a few other news headlines. And this was sort of the tipping point, and this was finally enough to push CS over the edge for a material change and into the hands of UBS. So, you know, when times get tough, that's when things come to a head, and they just didn't do enough until now, and they're being forced to take action. We often in the investing world think about the stock price as being an output of the fundamentals. But sometimes, and I think this is one of these situations where the reverse can also be true. It's this notion that George Soros talks about of reflexivity, where the stock price going down can actually negatively influence the fundamentals. And that can actually cause the situation to feed on itself, where clients see the stock price going down, they worry about their bank, they move their deposits instead of going the other way around, where the stock price is more reflecting uh, what's going on in the economy or with their clients, the stock price can actually influence their clients' behavior, which is very interesting and uh, clearly one of these events that takes place in the risky tales of the stock market, you know, one of these statistically abnormal uh, events that we went through. Although, you know, clearly we've had a few financial crises over the years. How do you think about what's similar this time and so far what you've seen in terms of this relatively small thus far banking crisis. How does it compare now to 2008? It's a good question. And I've really only started to think about it. And I'm sure more thoughts will come in over time as you, you do all in the situation and, and look back. But there really aren't a lot of similarities. I mean, when you, when you look back, there was a tightening cycle with Greenspan starting to raise rates. And that continued right up into 2006 until it eventually set off the chain reaction across the financial sector and leading to a deep recession. Again, it kind of culminated with the tightening cycle and just worked its way into the system. And I think the other similarity is that problems started to bubble up in the banking sector before they spread out in 2007, 2008 in the, in the global financial crisis. 
But I think there are more differences this time around, at least thus far. So again, in 2008, that was really about toxic assets. I mean, there was a lot of uh, mortgages to subprime borrowers, people that couldn't afford to make mortgage payments, things that were you know, not being done properly on the documentation side and all kinds of stuff like that. Some pretty egregious stuff in yeah. the financial engineering world, all of the alphabet soup, the CLOs, the CMBS that were all, you know, leverage on leverage on leverage, things that were rated AAA, but were really just, you know, much lower rated, but diversified pools of assets. Very different now. Exactly. This episode, again, so far is not at all about toxic assets. In fact, if you look at Silicon Valley's balance sheet, about half of its assets, if not a little more, in terms of its yield-oriented securities, were in government-backed debt securities. Like these are backed by the full faith of the U.S. government. These aren't toxic assets. So that was clearly not an issue with Silicon Valley Bank. I think the next point was that, you know, in 2008, these issues were more widespread and being felt throughout all of the banks, the large U.S. money center banks that I talked about, small U.S. banks, and even some non-U.S. banks that were buying these, you know, mortgage securities and involved in the U.S. mortgage market. And today, the problems this far are largely within a select group of regional banks, which make up a small part of the banking system. You know, again, without getting into details, banks are run much more conservatively today than 2008. It doesn't mean, you know, there can't be issues, but overall risk is lower. Leverage in the system is lower. The banks hold more capital. They hold more liquidity. You made the point regulation is always looking back and they've done a lot of strengthening. And, you know, those things weren't there in 2008. The last point I'll touch on Again, 2008 was really more about exuberance in the mortgage market, and you can probably touch on this, but that's a big part of the overall economy. And today, the only exuberance we're, we're kind of seeing is in this high growth venture capital, private equity, some of these industries that might not have ramifications for the broader overall market and economy. We're definitely of the view that while the root cause of tightening cycle is the same, there are some big differences on what's happening under the surface of the economy this time versus last time. Uh, you know, when you look at 2008, real estate really was at the center of the crisis. That does not appear to be the case right now. Like even Signature Bank, which is now gone, their multifamily portfolio was 99.5% current. The credit quality is still very, very strong there. That certainly was not the case in 2008. We weren't seeing anything like that. There were lots of toxic assets. There were the adjustable rate mortgages. Remember the mortgages that would reset to rates that were much higher than the initial payments and people didn't even know they had them in many cases. There were the widespread ninja loans, the no income, no job, no assets. This is not the same situation, in my opinion, at all. That doesn't mean that it's not serious, and it doesn't mean it doesn't warrant a response from the Fed. Certainly, we're going to see a change in oversight and regulation. When it comes to regulation in the U.S., there was a big change in 2018 where the regional banks were deregulated, and it caused them to do a lot of different things. One of them was take on a bunch more loans in commercial real estate. In Canada, we haven't seen those same changes to regulation. I think Canadian regulation in the banking sector remains extremely strong. Could you talk a little to generally the differences in regulation in Canada and U.S. and maybe even more broadly, just industry structure, the differences in between Canadian and U.S. banking? Going back to the first question and the first point I made is just that not all U.S. banks are created equal. Again, we have these U.S. regional banks that were subject to less 
onerous regulations versus the big money center banks. And there are some super regional banks, we call them, that have operations across a few different states and areas. So that's the US Bank or PNC, those types truest of Truist Financial. Yeah, exactly. Truest, right. So again, there, there are some differences even within the US market. And even in this you know, crisis so far, the big banks are actually weathering the storm quite well and, and kind of thriving through it as they're getting more deposits in and they're being viewed as more resilient and, and viewed as, as stronger franchises. Anti-fragile. So, exactly. That's you know in the US alone. But the, to then um, compare it to Canada, I guess, first and foremost, the US, as I mentioned, is very fragmented. There's over 4,000 banks in the US. Simplistically, more banks there equals more competition and potentially more risk-taking. I mean, you know, if there's 4,000 banks, there's always going to be somebody willing to want to fight to give a loan. In Canada, you know, again, we're much more concentrated. Our big banks have something like 80 to 90% of overall market share. And that means it's just kind of a, a more rational oligopoly as you have less places to go. So, I mean, that can work against you in some ways, but in this case, it's, it's very strong to have that concentration across five or six banks. Secondly, I think regulation in the U.S. is more rules-based, and that's, again, a function of the size and number of banks. Here's the rules, follow the rules. The regulator can't be calling every single bank to make sure they're on top of everything. You know, in fact, Canada's small enough. The regulator has been known and, and has done this where they've gotten all the banks together in a room with the central bank, the government. They can get everyone together to solve a problem. So it's, it's more principles-based and they can work out solutions more quickly. And I think that is something that is very beneficial. And, and again, the point I maybe didn't touch on for the Canadian banks, but these are very diversified franchises as well. And over the last 40 years, They've consolidated, you know, wealth management and, and brokerage, insurance in some cases, investment banking, retail banking, commercial banking. And, you know, they've even expanded, obviously, into other jurisdictions like the U.S. And so they have very resilient, diversified franchises. The returns they make on their business are, you know, 40 to 50 percent higher than U.S. banks as a function of their size and scale and diversification. And when you make more money, you generate more profits and, and more capital and you can just withstand tougher times and weather the storm a little bit better. So you would measure profitability with ROE for Canadian banks. So how would they compare Canadian banks and U.S. banks in terms of return on equity? Return on equity for Canadian banks over the last decade has been in the mid-teens. We can call it 15%. U.S. banks are around in the 10% range, we'll say, fairly similar between the regionals and the, the large money center banks, but that's a pretty noticeable gap. So could we shift gears a little bit and talk about the implications of the crisis that's unfolded so far. How is this going to impact the economy, individuals, uh, and businesses? I think there's two aspects to that question and how it could impact individuals and businesses. And the first is just the broader macro impact and the economic concerns. You know, if other banks that are, are um, outside of Silicon Valley and Signature and Credit Suisse are feeling a little bit more stress and just looking at the environment they'll probably tighten up on their lending standards and just make sure they're watching things a bit more carefully. That was actually already happening as the Fed was tightening. You know, tightening conditions, again, usually cause a little bit of losses on the credit side. So they were already tightening up. So that's the first element. This might just accelerate or accentuate the cyclical tightening that a bank would do. But then secondly, there's less availability of cheap deposits. Deposits are how banks fund loans. Some deposits are moving out of the system. Some are moving to different banks. And that can just create dislocation. And again, less cheap deposits means banks can't make as many loans. And that just, again, tightens up for everybody and, and will have kind of broader cyclical implications. But maybe, Tom, to throw back to you, I mean, banks are big lenders to owners of real estate. 
what do you expect banks to do with the the real estate borrowers and you know what will you hone in on in the coming months in the real estate space to see if that's happening certainly it's too early to tell so far what the impact will be on real estate but i think the Silicon Valley and signature situations are instructive in that what you found was the weakest players suffered the quickest. And in real estate, what is the weakest player? Right now, that's office. Certainly, office vacancy has gone in downtowns in the US from 10% pre COVID to 18%. And some estimates are that it's even higher than that. And certainly in some markets, it's much higher than that still. That's caused by a bunch of things. One of them is the new supply that was under construction prior to COVID that's been delivered into a market that's been quite weak. Why is the demand market so weak? Well, i.e., why do tenants not want to lease as much space? It's because people want to work from home. It's because companies are rationalizing their space. I think it was Steve Roth, the CEO of Vornado, said on the last conference call, the quote is, I think you have to assume Friday is dead forever. And as a result of that, companies are going to want to think about their office space a little bit differently. And our view is that asset values in office are going to come down a lot because rents are going to come down because there's not a whole lot of demand. And we would expect that the lenders that have some of these loans on their balance sheets are not going to want to renew them. So that's where we think the stress is already starting to appear. We've seen a couple of instances already of large owners of office default on their mortgages already. PIMCO defaulted on their Columbia Property Trust acquisition portfolio. That was a $1.7 billion loan in real estate. That's big. I know that some of the numbers we've been talking about have been much bigger, but in real estate, a $1.7 billion mortgage is quite large. We saw Brookfield also lost some tenants in a downtown Los Angeles portfolio, and they also defaulted on that mortgage. Part of it is due to the fact that as interest rates have gone up, some of these companies have floating rate debt, so they're interest payments have ballooned dramatically. And some of it is because they've just lost the income. They've lost tenants. They've left, moved to newer buildings as new buildings have been completed from that pre-COVID construction that I mentioned. So I think that's the area we're most worried about. When I look at the other areas in real estate, there are lots of areas that remain pretty strong. A strong economy, which we have right now, is pretty good for real estate. You have Very good job growth means multifamily. It remains relatively full, i.e. apartment buildings across the U.S. remain relatively full. The retail landscape was very heavily tested during COVID, but COVID was also such a challenge that almost no new space has been built for the last four, five, six years because it was challenged going into COVID because of e-commerce. So the retail landscape, I think, remains fairly strong, not a lot of new supply, tenants are pretty healthy still. And then industrial, because of e-commerce, remains really, really strong. The rents there have skyrocketed since the start of COVID. So I look at a lot of areas of commercial real estate and I see still a fair bit of strength. Office is clearly going to be the area that is going to be most affected by what I think will be a shrinking commercial real estate loan book for many of these regional banks and maybe even money center banks too. As these loan books shrink, I think office would be the place where they 
want to shrink it the most. So I would be very cautious there. In our global real estate fund, we own zero office landlords because we think it's just too risky. I'd love to ask you the elephant in the room question. Will there be contagion from this into other areas, even beyond real estate, for example? Do you think there will be? Is it too early to tell? How do you think about that question from where you sit now? You know, I think the lesson learned here is that real material risks are impossible to predict, and they just surface in unpredictable ways. No one was talking about deposits leaving the system en masse. You know, a couple of weeks ago, banks and regulators do lots of stress tests, and no one was testing for this. So it's very hard to tell, truthfully. Maybe a couple of thoughts, though. Again, Silicon Valley, Signature Bank, CS, Credit Suisse, these were idiosyncratic situations. And you know, confidence is shaken for the moment, and that can lead to bigger issues if those overseeing the situations do not act with enough force and, and enough liquidity and do enough things to stabilize the system. So I don't think there's contagion. But then I think more importantly, from an investment landscape and a portfolio perspective, just it really emphasizes that owning a diversified portfolio of strong businesses that have resilient revenues and earnings and cash flows is just critical for weathering the storm as an investor. And that's probably the overarching theme I would leave you with. So I think that's a great point on active management. I think it's important for our listeners and unit holders to hear, like, did you have exposure to Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank or even Credit Suisse? You know, Tom, similar to the comments you made on office exposure, we try to focus on high quality companies and we did not own any of those names in, in the financial services fund or across the equity income team. But it would be great to hear some additional thoughts that you have on, on active management and how it can play a part in, in a portfolio to avoid some of these trickier situations and idiosyncratic situations. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how big Signature or Silicon Valley were in your benchmark, but certainly for me on the office side covering real estate, office for a long time was a really meaningful part of the benchmark. When we were looking at it, even prior to COVID, we didn't really think office had attractive economics. And certainly post-COVID, the use case for office was really hurt by working from home. So for us as active managers, we were willing to go to zero weight in what was a sector that at one point was over 10% of the benchmark. And we were willing to go all the way to zero. For passive owners of the real estate index, they had to ride that all the way down to where it is in the US. I think it takes up about 4% of the benchmark right now. So let's material capital losses. I think even more important in this situation for us was owning liquid real estate. Often when we look at our competitor set over the last decade, a lot of folks have asked us like, shouldn't I just go out and buy a building or buy a private real estate fund? And the ability for us to go out and sell these assets, get it out of your portfolio and recover uh, a bunch of the capital that you've got invested in what is a problem area. I think in real estate, especially when you make mistakes, if you're a long-term private owner of these assets, it can be really tough to get out. I think there are people all over Canada, whether it's in the pension plans and all over the world that own office buildings right now that wish they didn't. And for us, owning a liquid real estate portfolio, at least we were able to kind of mitigate those problems and focus on the areas in real estate where there are really positive fundamentals like cell phone towers and data centers and industrial real estate and manufactured housing and apartments where you know, you're getting tons of inflow of immigrants into Canada. Apartment rent growth has been extremely strong. Like, Wouldn't you rather be there than invested in office? 
the answer, you know, for us is really easy. Obviously, you know, you need to be a, an active manager, but I think, you know, that's one of the things we've been willing to do. And clearly you are willing to do it in the financial services fund as well. Nick, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Tom. This is a special edition of On The Money. And on behalf of all of us at Dynamic Funds, we wish you all continued good health and safety. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to another edition of On The Money with Dynamic Funds. For more information on Dynamic and our complete lineup of actively managed funds, contact your financial advisor or visit our website at dynamic.ca. Thanks for joining us. This audio has been prepared by 1832 Asset Management LP and is provided for information purposes only. Views expressed regarding a particular investment, economy, industry, or market sector should not be considered an indication of trading intent of any of the mutual funds managed by 1832 Asset Management LP. These views are not to be relied upon as investment advice, nor should they be considered a recommendation to buy or sell. These views are subject to change at any time based upon markets and other conditions, and we disclaim any responsibility to update such views. To the extent this audio contains information or data obtained from third-party sources, it is believed to be accurate and reliable as of the date of publication. But 1832 Asset Management LP does not guarantee its accuracy or reliability. Nothing in this document is or should be relied upon as a promise or representation as to the future. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of return are the historical annual compound total returns, including changes in unit values. And reinvestment of all distributions does not take into account sales, redemption, or option changes, or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated.